On this episode of Complicated Conversations, we are joined by Alyssa Friedland. She is a graduate of Yale University and Columbia Law School and currently teaches novel writing at Yale. Alyssa is the acclaimed author of four previous novels, and her fifth, The Most Likely Club, is out now, and that's what we're talking about today. So welcome to Pop Fiction Women, Alyssa. Thank you so much for having me and putting up with my technical difficulties before this conversation started. You know, as Kate said, it's the lawyers that are most concerned. Yes. We, we want everything to go well. Time is money. We can't ever totally. get out of that mentality. And so when, when totally. the type A lawyer can't get into the Riverside chat, it's a pain like no other. I, I yeah, can exactly. assure you that. They- <laughs> so tell us a little bit to start about the Most Likely Club. Sure. So it is the story of four women who were very close friends in high school, the best of friends. Uh, They got through high school and all the hard times as a foursome. And they've stayed in touch through the years, although, you know, real life has intervened. And suddenly it's their 25th high school reunion. And three of the four of them make it back to campus for the reunion. And one can't make it, she says, because of work. And these women are filled with all the angst you would expect being back (sighs) in the place where, you know, they were their 16, 17 year old insecure, clueless selves. And after some surprising things happen at the reunion, they pull out the yearbook, they see their high school superlatives in the yearbook, and they see like, wow, Life has not quite turned out the way they expected it to when they graduated. And they have a sort of sense of renewed optimism, determination, alcohol is involved, and they (laughs) decide to try to make their high school dreams come true at this stage in their life. And naturally, like you can imagine being in your mid-40s with all your adult responsibilities like making drastic changes in your life is not without complication and a lot of they encounter a lot of obstacles some serious some humorous you know some in between and uh, that's this is their journey that they take together I love that you did a great job with that and I want to just say before we get into questions this book is a really fun easy read It, it will sweep you away but Given that we, our interview segments are called Complicated Conversations, and you've given us so much content here of like big dilemmas and existential crisis, I mean, we're going to talk about some, some real stuff here. I hope you'll dig deep with us a little bit if, you'll, if you're up for it. I'm up for it. And we don't expect any answers, <laughs> but we want to we be having a dialogue. And it seems like you are the perfect person because you raised all these questions in this book uh, no, to do I'm, that I'm with. excited. It was Good. meant to evoke like Good. difficult issues yeah. and yeah. complicated okay. conversations. Yeah. <laughs> and you gave us complicated women, which is yeah. also the focus of this podcast, four of them, um, as you mentioned. So we want to start there with them. We have Tara, who dreamed of being a top chef, but instead teaches five-year-olds at a, a little place called Kitchen Kiddos. You have Melissa, who was voted most likely to be president, but turns out it's of the PTA. Uh, Suki, a billionaire cosmetics entrepreneur who has it all, seemingly, until she has nothing. And then Priya, the brilliant doctor whose work-life balance, like many of us, is totally off-kilter. Uh, so we wanted to talk first about your development of these women Maybe who came first, 
who you relate to the most, what you learned from them. I mean, anything is sort of up for grabs, but you, you, you gave us four such rich, complex women to talk about. It's hard, you know, I'm trying to remember the order in which I conceived of them. I knew, you know, with Suki, who's the, the major like billionaire CEO, I really, I knew that she would be a part of the story because I wanted to talk about the double standard that is applied to women in major roles. So I was very sure of her, like not necessarily like how she would have made her money or exactly her trajectory, but that there was going to be a superstar achieving woman in the book where I could explore how difficult it is to be a woman in power. So that was for sure. I think Melissa, I, she's a single mom and I, I wanted to, you know, really just address like that additional challenge. It's not something that I've personally experienced in my own family, but it's something that many women, you know, contend with. And the fact that she, you know, sort of had to give up her dreams and work, you know, she fell into a job that was not her passion because she had to support her husband and she had got pregnant. And and it's like very hard. She was such a determined person, but it's very hard once you get entrenched, like you just, so busy every day, like keeping things together. And also she's responsible for paying the bills that she doesn't have the luxury of like, okay, now my child is older, but she's like, still has to report to her job. You don't get these, you don't get this year to like figure out and try something else. And um, she also is like someone who has, she really struggles with her weight because it was important to me that I, I wanted to address head on that like, some of the things that are challenging for us in high school, like even if we totally rectify them or they're not a part of our lives anymore as adults, like they're still such like triggers for us and that they're still, yeah, you know, if you had like terrible acne when you were in high school, like you might always be self-conscious about your appearance, even if you have flawless skin as an adult. Yeah. And I think it's the same. You with, carry like, that. Or, yeah. or even like, children who have like stutters and speech impediments that they are able to outgrow and overcome, but like they are never going to be confident like public speakers. And I just think that there's like certain things that happen to us when we're at that like vulnerable age. And so for Melissa, who didn't feel good about her body when she was in high school, like she always will struggle with her weight, even if it's like not a number on the scale, but the way she feels about herself. And I, when we talk about complication, I wanted to give her a daughter who's struggling with her weight so that she's like extra tormented as a mother, like stressed about her own weight and worried about her daughter's weight, but not wanting to give her daughter a problem, but also not wanting her daughter to gain even more weight and have a harder time. And it's like, I feel like Melissa really helped me explore like what it's like to be a mom and watch your child go through the same things you went through, but still not be able to like ease their heartache and ease their pain. I was thinking about that because I'm like, I started doing that with my kids when they were like, as soon as they were born, I was worried about sleep schedules because I'm a, I'm a night owl and I'm a terrible sleeper. And so I was like, so crazy about sleep schedules and introducing new foods because I don't really eat vegetables. So I'm like, I got to do this. And you're constantly trying to right those wrongs, but also not make it a big deal. And also don't know how to do it for yourself. And oh my gosh. I I also think like 
some things are just a rite of passage. Like mm. you have to go through a bad time. Yeah. When you're uh, multiple bad times, when you're in middle school, when you're in high school, like even if like a mother or father can say to their child, like, trust me, that kid who's like the bully now is going to be a, like, we see it. We're like, they're the cool yeah. kid now, but like, they're going nowhere. But like our kid yeah. is, doesn't matter that we say that to them. Like, they're not going to believe it. They still see like, no, that you don't understand. Everyone loves her. She's so popular. Everyone follows her. And like mm-hmm. being the meat girl, like it loses its cachet like pretty quickly, you uh, know, yeah. as you get into adulthood. And then, you know, I'm giving very long winded answers and I'm sorry, but mm. um, I guess with Tara, I wanted, she's the chef. I, I wanted to, you know, explore a woman who just doesn't want like a traditional you know, she doesn't want children and like, Mm -hmm. you know, and she sort of wrestles with that because it's like, she thinks that that's what she should want because that's what most of the women around her want. And it's like, takes her some time to kind of understand that. The other thing with Tara that I think is really interesting is like her reliance on her parents and that she Mm -hmm. is in her forties, but she's still, they still help her out financially. And it's like, it has something of an arrested development, you know? Yeah. Or like she can't really be her authentic self around them because they might not approve of her lifestyle, but she, she really can't afford to like piss them off, you know, because they help her out. And so I think that's very complicated. And I see a lot of situations where people in their forties, even into their fifties are still like codependent on their parents, be it financially or even just for their approval, you know, it's a little bit like, yeah. It kind of can stunt your development. And then finally, probably the character that I most personally identify with is Priya, who's yes. the doctor. And I am obviously not a doctor, but her life most resembles mine. And that she and her husband are both busy professionals. They have three children. On paper, their life looks like pretty great, like anyone would trade. But ultimately, she is just like beyond overwhelmed because while they both work at the same hospital and have similar jobs, like she's doing 98% of the child's care yeah, and the family management, which is definitely, I mean, it's getting better in my household because I'm becoming more vocal about it, but yeah. I am doing the lion's share of like the camp forms and the after school sign oh, up and forms. getting the kids, the forms, <laughs> getting the kids new sneakers Mm-hmm. And taking them to the dentist, yada, yada, yada. And and that's like a very common problem. And I wanted to, I really, really, really wanted to write about it because it's something I'm constantly thinking about. And I felt yeah. like I could explore it through my writing. Maybe it would help me. And I feel like it has helped me. And I at least wanted like other women who feel the same way to like, to feel seen at yes. least, you know? Yes, Mm -hmm. that you definitely nailed that. And I feel like that was the character I was drawn to the most for all of those reasons. And, you know, it's not even like there's a whole spectrum of husbands involved in this. And some of them are jerks and some of them are not jerks. And my husband is definitely not a jerk, but he doesn't see everything that gets done. And I and he will do everything on a list that I give him. But the whole point is, like, I have to make that list. Exactly. It's exactly right. Like, my husband will always say, like, I want to help, but you have to give me, like, very, you know, clear, discreet tasks, and I'll do everything. And I'm like, it's just the mental load of even having to 
think like you'll take them to the dentist, but someone had to know that they were due at the dentist. Uh Uh-huh. And called and made the appointment and made sure the insurance worked. And Mm -hmm. yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. And I, for me, the pandemic has been all over the place for, for this, but I think having my husband home for so long, I think made him a little bit more entrenched and he got more aware of things on a everyday basis. But I, you know, it, it's it's a challenge and there are no good, easy solutions. Certainly no easy ones, but even the good ones are hard because it feels like the burden starts, you know, during pregnancy or yeah. if you nurse or these are things only the woman can do. And it I, just sets yeah. the wrong tone. I agree. I also find it like in a meta way that like, yeah. I'm too tired to even have the conversation oh, yes. about how I'm too tired. Like, it's crazy. <laughs> I'm like, I want to sit down and I want to say like, we have to make a list. We have to divide our responsibilities up more fairly. Yeah, that's honestly, a whole other at 9 p.m., yeah. I just want to put the TV on and have a, you know, a glass of wine. Like, I don't yes. want to even no. talk about that stuff. I'm so tired. And so, yes, <laughs> I think... But yeah, I agree with you about the pandemic. I think it did become more obvious to how much a lot of husbands, yeah. like how much work the mothers are doing, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. that they wouldn't have ever even noticed, you know, while they were out of the house at work. Exactly. So yeah. yeah, yeah, like hearing me on the phone with the insurance company or constantly going to his office to use the printer to deal with the forms and like, you know, it's just, con- yeah, so I agree yeah. that, that was yeah. one benefit. Oh, the forms, the forms. (laughs) They're endless. So I, most related to Suki, I mean, I'm not um, as wildly successful as her, but she is certainly, as you mentioned in the group, the most objectively successful billionaire, entrepreneur, CEO um, that appears to quote unquote have it all. Um, But then, of course, there's this expose that comes out and we start seeing some cracks in her facade and in and some challenges to her leadership style. And you mentioned that you wanted to explore sort of the double standard. And I think even through Melissa's storyline as well. And that really spoke to me just about how women in power are treated or women who dare to be outwardly ambitious. Yeah, I mean, I I think that. Suki says it best when she's explaining what was going on at her company to her friends. And she's like, she would deliver a certain message like, you know, we have to cut back, we have to stop at the free snacks, or we have to, you know, change the healthcare plan and this or that, or, or like, I expect people to be responsive to me, like even on the weekend, and like, everyone would think she's a real BI, you know, yeah. But then she had a, you know, a man, a deputy working for her. And she noticed that like, she would deliver the same message uh, he would deliver the same message and it would be received totally differently. And it's like really sad. And I don't know how that will ever change. Like I'm not, I'm generally a very optimistic person and that's an area where I'm really not optimistic. optimistic. Like I don't, I don't know how we're ever in a place where like, a woman can be in charge and people don't perceive her directives, you know, negatively or more negatively right. or like think of her as just like, oh, she must be having personal problems or she's in a bad mood or like things that we would or never on her say period. about a man. <laughs> on her period, yes, which is like the just most, the, the you know, most insulting the thing The most ever. insulting of all, of course. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I find that like very, 
I find it really depressing, actually. It is. You know? It is. And I think one of the issues is how to address it because there are so many – is it that the the women should just act like men? And then if you act like a man, then will you get the respect of a man? But that also doesn't honor the differences. And also, should men have more feminine leadership styles? It, should it not be about, you know, these kind of, um, you know, macho – like stay late, work late, hunter, gather kind of thing. And maybe there should be more balance for everyone, the men and the women, and and that should come from the top down. And I, I think we haven't quite figured out where to go with all of that quite yet. And so no. And it's like really been at issue for a long time. And I yeah. don't feel like we've arrived at any no. great solution. So this is like one area where I'm sadly like just kind of deflated, which stinks, you know, but yeah. I am. Yeah. Uh, Kate, we didn't get your quote from Suki, which I love. So I want you to use that. Oh, yes. I love this quote. Okay. So it says, it's not like there's some secret female CEO club where we can all exchange tips. I don't have Sheryl Sandberg on speed dial. And what the hell does lean in even mean? If I was going to have a motto, it would be stand tall. And that line, reading that for the first time is when I stopped to realize the irony of the expression lean in. And I know a lot of people have made jokes about lean in and what does it mean? But I suddenly did have this vision because of this woman like hunched over with the weight of the world and her family. Yeah. Yes. That's how I feel. I'm like, if I lean in anymore, I will be on the floor. Like I can't, there's no, there's no more leaning possible. I will be face first, face first. Yes, exactly. Yeah. There is no more leaning. So standing tall would actually be a miracle. That, right? Yes. Yes. Yes, I am hunched over. Yeah. Like, why is our motto something of a woman with bad posture, I think is what the next line was in the book. <laughs> yeah. And you had Melissa even say, sorry, which I thought was another great line that being a woman was was zero sum. I mean, you get get something, you give something. I mean, why why does it have to be like that? And yet that is how it feels to do more. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, no, I had a lot of fun writing that passage. And yeah. it was so good. I do feel that way. Like I probably like when Lean In first came out, I wasn't really in the same place I am in my life. So I didn't pay that much attention to it. And now that I am in that stage, I'm like, I, I couldn't be more leaned. I'm yeah. basically horizontal. <laughs> yeah. <you know>? So, <laughs> Of course. Yep, exactly. Like people, when I complain about how exhausted and overwhelmed I am, they always say to just do less, take on less. I'm like, why should I have to do less? Why shouldn't other people have to do do more? more. Yeah. 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 Like, why should I have to? Like, I teach and I write. Why should I have to give up one of those? Like, just because I also have three kids. I don't have 10 kids. I have three. I have a very reasonable number of children, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh. Yeah, I think you make a choice to have 10. Yeah, maybe you can't be a full-time writer or full-time teacher, but like you have three kids and I, you know, I'm blessed enough. I have help. I have a babysitter. Yeah. Like, isn't this balanced? Like I have, 
it's not, I can only imagine for people who have less, you know, yeah. help than I have, how they must yeah. be drowning, you know? So, yeah, but I can't, I get so irritated and I hear that from women and men alike, like just do less, take on less. But I'm like, but then the other thing is like to go back to the zero sum comment that Melissa makes is that what I've said very clearly to my friends and to my husband is that I know if I did less work, which is the part of my life I really enjoy, that's yeah. like really challenging, interesting. It's not like I would have leisure time. That time would just be filled with more forms and more crap yeah. basically yes. that I don't want to do. Like at least now if I'm working, I feel very justified in like send the babysitter to the dentist with the kids, you know, yeah. get my husband's assistant to help with the insurance forms, this or that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. If I don't work anymore, then I've given up the part of my life that's really intellectually satisfying and I'm filling it with like the mindless minutia that I can't <laughs> stand. And so that's zero sum. Yes. Like I would give up, but it would be filled up with other things, yes. you know? Yes. Like if I stopped working a little and it meant that like two days a week, I really just like had time to read and exercise yeah, more. Sure, really be, like that yeah. sounds lovely. I mean, at least for a short term, Yeah, but- you know, probably I, not. I you take you take my point. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and so it also goes to this idea that the most likely club explores the gap between the expectations of a young adult still in school and the reality of adult life. I think at seventeen, I had a vision of marrying the love of my life and being a high powered attorney, having four kids. I wanted four. I don't have four. And also never, you know, stopping getting manicures with my besties. Like I was fully delusional or maybe living in a David E. Kelly show. But I love that this book addresses that gap and has you look at what what happens. It's not always a wrong turn. It's just a, what were you kind of thinking to start, I guess. So I, I wanted to know what the book taught you, writing the book taught you about having goals and dreams that evolve from our younger selves into adulthood. I think especially, I just, yeah. I think it was like just looking back on my high school self and thinking I was very, very ambitious like in high school and I didn't see any problem with like being and able so to have it all. Like I had no just, conflict. You know, very, yeah. No conflict. It never occurred to me. And I remember thinking my mother sounded like really antiquated when she was like, well, you're it's going to be very challenging. Like even when I went to law school and I remember hearing my parents being like, you should go into this area of law. It's very like reasonable if you're having a family, like the hours aren't that bad. I was like, why would I have a problem? Like I can do everything, you know, and that was already in my early twenties. So even after high school, I was still delusional. And now I really do see like that, that part of me in high school that thought that I would have like every single thing I want work out perfectly. And you know, have enough time left at the end of the day. Like I just, I guess it's a good thing because it's nice to dream big. And like, yeah. I don't know, do we yeah. want, on the one hand, it's nice to deliver a message to women who are, you know, at that age that like, it's not possible to have it all. And so you shouldn't like set that up for yourself. On the other hand, it's a little bit sad to like, pass know, that message to, on yeah. that reality on at such a young age, because like, that's maybe what drives us to work so hard is that like, we think that we can have everything. And so if someone tells you at 16, 17, like, ah, like you're actually going to be miserable. Like you're going to constantly feel like you're drowning and I have to make yeah. difficult choices all the time. 
Right. We're what maybe like do? not mature enough to like even understand what that means and also just feel a little bit like, well, that what's stinks. the point? You yeah. Know, what's what's the point? You yeah. know? And I didn't think it would be easy. I didn't think everyone in the world could do it, but surely I thought I could achieve Well, that's the other thing. There's so much like, it's so funny because like, you know, when I have seen a a therapist from time to time, I'm like, wow, I think I'm like this unique, like special person, but ultimately like she can finish my sentences. Like I'm basically (laughs) just saying, but like, you know what I mean? Like she's, she's been practicing for, she's probably been a psychiatrist for like 40 plus years, 40, 50 years. And it appears that like, I'm not as unique as I thought I was. And like, she's heard this before, you know, and I, and it's like so funny that we think we're so special, especially when we're younger. We're like, well, yeah, some people have a hard time like raising a family and working a career, but like, not me. Like, obviously I could do that. You know, like we're not as special as we think we are. No, no, no. Well, but I want to talk about being a lawyer, um, and yes. as you've touched on so many times, and and also trying to decide what kind of law to practice and all that, and and how even in when you do that, even people who do do that, it's still hard to do everything. I guess is the point. But you are one of our favorite types of authors, which is lawyer turned writer. And I always want to know because it's different for a lot of people. What drew you to the law at first? And what did you get out of it? And then when did it turn for you? What really drew me to the law, if I'm being honest, and I'm always honest, is like, I didn't know what to do when I graduated. And it seemed like a safe thing to do. Go to law school. I knew I was good at being a student. I like academic environments. That's why I've gone back to teach. I just love being on a campus. And I thought like, okay, I'm good at being a student. And I don't know how to do anything else. I've always loved writing and wanted to be a writer, but that's like, what do you do? Just graduate from college and then go sit at Starbucks? Like that doesn't pay the bills. Like, and you may not make it. Like that's the truth, you know? Like it's a more secure path. If you go to law school, like you'll very likely be able to get a job as a lawyer. Like it's not, you know, whereas if you decide I'm going to be a writer, it's far less likely that you'll get published. And even if you were to get published, it's far less likely you'd be able to make enough money to really support yourself. And I just was like, what am I going to do? I'm not going to go move back home with my parents and live there forever so I could write the next great American novel. Didn't have any good ideas even. I was so young. I feel like you have to live a little before you can write something meaningful. And like law school was like buying myself some time. And I really do mean buying because it was very expensive to go, you know? And so (laughs) it was a fortune. I did like it. I actually thought it was like a great environment to be in. It was like very intellectual. I love my classes. I I love, like I said, I love school. Yeah. I just didn't love being a lawyer. And I only lasted three years at a law firm. And I was certainly not miserable, but I just was like, I wasn't feeling any passion. Like this isn't it. And, And I kind of feel a lot with the women in the most likely club are feeling like, is this it? Like, is this? This is not what I signed up for, or it is what I signed up for, but now I want to change. It feels different. Yeah. It doesn't feel like I wanted it to And I just saw, like, especially because I got married, and so I had someone I was living with who I could compare myself to, and my husband likes his job. Yeah. Like, they're like, oh, you're not supposed to – they don't call it work for nothing, but, like, it's actually not true. Like, I – Yeah. I like work. I like what I do now. Like, now – it's not like I, I wake up every day like excited to write. It's sometimes excruciating. It's like 
you can read some terrible reviews. You can be exhausted from having to promote yourself. There's negatives, but I still overall love my job. And my yes. husband is the same. It's not like every day at work is a pleasure for him. And he That's has setbacks and stress. Yeah. But like come Sunday night, like let's say pre-pandemic when, you know, back in the office five days mm. a week full time, like come Sunday night and he knows he's about to have a full, full week in the office. He's like, okay, like. Yeah. You know, it's like no yeah. problem. Like he just he didn't have like a pit in his stomach or a feeling like, oh, I wish the weekend was another day. He was like fully ready to go back the next day because he enjoyed what he was doing. And I'm like, there's got to be a better way. I see someone who wants to go to work. I want to be someone who wants to go to work. Oh, I love that. I, yeah, I think that is – you can't deny that feeling. And if that feeling is not right, it, there's something to look at there. Just as you were talking of, you know, having the dread and um, just going to law school because you were good at school, I just needed to say that is exactly me, 100%. Yeah. And the, I'm good at school. I legit thought that was a 100% of reason to go to law school and make that investment yeah. of time and money. I'm like, because I'm good at school. Now that I yeah. think about it, was that I a know. good reason? I don't yeah, know. I know. But it was- We've heard it. Yeah. We've heard it a lot though. We we've have. heard it. We have. And I'm going to blame- Well, it's also I mean, all we've we ever known. Yes. No, that's true. Yes. yes. <laughs> but true. I'm going to blame my high school superlative on this. And that's how I'm going to get Ooh, it back to the that? most likely club, um, most likely to succeed. Uh, shocker. Wow. Yeah. Big surprise there. Um, but um, it's funny because, you know- Karim was saying that the book explores sort of the expectations of young adults in high school, but it also explores the labels that gets placed on kids, right? Literally, in this case, in the form of these superlatives. And the ones in your book, I thought were very specific and creative, like most likely to cure cancer or run a Michelin star restaurant. When I went to high school in the 90s, similar to the book setting, it was a little more basic, like most intelligent best dressed, uh, most athletic, you know, that you got these labels, like you're the smart one, you're the pretty one, you know, you're, I guess, the most likely to succeed. Um, but I do think the question of the book, or one of the things you explore is whether these these superlatives are a good idea or not. Um, you know, I think as a society, we've sort of swung back and forth on these type things, you know, that everybody gets a trophy culture or, you know, doing away with valedictorian. And I, I, I can see both sides, but I think I love about this book is one of the things the superlatives end up doing for them is they get to use it as sort of a vehicle or a motivation to get back to who they are or, or to the things they dreamed of. And so in that sense, I'm all for them. You know, I think I'm giving away which side I fall on. But I was curious, you know, for you, whether you think these are you know, something, you know, sort of a vestige of the past or, or have some value, you know? I think they're really fun and playful. Mm -hmm. And so I would say I err on the side, like I would keep them mm -hmm. as well. I think it's fun. I don't, I would hope that people don't put like so much pressure on themselves that yeah. if they were to receive like a certain high school superlative, that they're like, feel bad about themselves, yeah. especially because they are so hyperbolic and so like extreme, you know, like no one, you know, it's like most likely to be a billionaire where like very few people are ever going to be a billionaire. Mm -hmm. So like, you're just like, you take that to be like, oh, people think I'm going to be successful, like that I'm going to make, you know, a good amount of money when I'm older. But, and I doubt, I don't think most people like think about their high school superlatives, mm -hmm. like on a, you know, that's right. That's true. On a daily basis. I would say like, if you think about the pressures that teenagers face, like they're so much more like 
social media base that something in the yeah. yearbook is like hardly going to be that damaging. So I, I think it's a, a fun tradition. Yeah. And, you know, people put so much effort into like creating their high school personas that it's like sort of a nice way to be rewarded because like, I don't think yeah. like they're not mean, you know, if they were mean, they wouldn't make, they right. wouldn't make it into the yearbook, you know, right, so they're sort of, right. they're, they're positive, you know? And so since they, they aren't mean spirited and I don't think that like they ultimately affect people's lives, you know, I think for my book, it's a device. It's a device yes, that I yeah. use <laughs> to show really the contrast between like Where life at are. 17 and life yeah. at 43, right. you know? And so it was more of a, a fun like technique yes. in the yes. book yeah. and less a point that I was trying to make about yeah. like superlatives in general. Yeah. No, it really yeah. works for the book. And okay. it's funny. I was actually telling someone about your book. Um, at the at the beach the other day and they were like that sounds awesome and then they said well yeah but so you were mostly likely to succeed like does that was that like a lot of pressure your whole life and it's like to your point I was like no like I, I didn't sit around every day for the rest of my life trying to live up to um whatever yeah, that and was I think, that's, I think that's exactly right yeah. yeah yeah and I kind of was you know ambitious to begin with hence why I got the title so it, that right, was in exactly. me anyway whether they gave right, me that right exactly or not. no one's getting most likely to succeed if they're like a slacker right, right. you know right. so you already were putting that pressure it's on like, yourself like oh god now Correct. i have to start performing <laughs> exactly <laughs> of okay so speaking of fun devices one of the ways we like to wrap up these conversations which are often tackling really big things is to talk about the very silly side interest we have in astrology. And I think that uh, Kate and I have come to astrology through trying to let go of things, not control everything, to pretend it's in the hands of something else, and also just to learn more about ourselves, personality, similar to kind of the superlatives. And it tells it's a basic place to start or to come back to. So we always ask our authors, what is your sign and do you relate to it? I am a Cancer. Oh. And yeah, I mean, I don't follow astrology closely, but whenever I have read any descriptions of Cancers, I feel like it's like an exact match to me. And I yeah. have been to Capricorn and I feel like I've read really good like descriptions of that relationship that I feel like I would agree. Like I've always... I would say the the most bizarre thing and why I tend to believe in astrology, even though I don't follow it closely. Yeah. And this is, a, people can't believe this, but <laughs> every serious relationship I've had, well, let's say probably like going back even from the time I was like 16, every boyfriend included and up to my husband, their birthdays have fallen within one week. Oh my gosh. Oh, wow. That's wild. January... 5th through January 12th. All Capricorns that and all within is. a week of each other. Okay. Tell me that's not crazy. With like, what? with only two small exceptions, like, right. you know, but I had seven or eight like real relationships <laughs> where the men, their birthdays were in that week. That is that, not normal. No. no. No, that is wild. It also means you have a great picker. You know your compatibility. You know yeah, what works. Yeah, I think so. Well, I think I, I would agree with that. Like, I I, I was think, never one, like, to waste time. It probably right. speaks to my, like, being very, like, 
ambitious and goal oriented. And I look back and regret and I hope that my kids aren't like this as much because in some ways it's a parent's dream to have such a focused child who's not like wasting time, but you also need to let yourself have some fun. And I was someone who like, if I didn't see a future with a romantic partner, Mm -hmm. they were out. I just didn't, but that's kind of dumb because I could have had like three or four months of like just a fun relationship that was like not about the future, but just about going on some really fun dates and having fun and like doing something a little out of character. And like, I was like, no, I'm on a timeline. I'm on this, I'm on that. Like I can't waste any time. Or what if I'm with, what if I'm dating the wrong person and then I can't meet the right person because I'm with the wrong person? Like it was so (laughs) This is why she went for Capricorn. You know? Yes. So I do sort of feel like I am a good picker in that sense. Like I do, I never did waste time with people I wasn't compatible with. And that does possibly explain like this whole crazy birthday phenomenon because like anyone I was with, I really, really was compatible with. It wasn't just like a fun folly. Yeah, I love that. Oh, I love that. I So cancer, both Kate and I, both of our mothers are cancers. Oh, okay. And, and cancer, they're a lot about home, oh, like a very, very nurturing, but also strict and kind of like keeping it on schedule. Like it's the crab, hard on outside, soft inside does that yeah yes yes I definitely run a tight ship very home-centered I like I don't know if this is like so cancer but like I'm I definitely like making like I'm the the fun person like I make the family like we are always off doing something as a group that I've come up with because like I just I really like the family time and I like to make it very very special and so I'm always doing a lot of planning that is very cancer. The cardinal sign. You're like out for adventure. Let's do something new. Very, yeah. I always yes. want to do something new and I'm always up for adventure. So like I have like, I have eight trips planned between now and spring. I'll oh. probably add more. Like I love to travel. I love adventure. So I love it. See, so that's different from tourists where people say tourists is about home, but theirs is like actually about the structure, like, right. and the couches and the, you know, the ambiance. Yeah, that's definitely, yeah, that's not me. Yeah, you're home is is your family your unit um that's so great i love that perfect so we also do yeah like to end with sort of anything that you're loving any books movies tv shows things you're obsessing over that we might or listeners would like well i'm always happy to share my favorite book of the summer was tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow by gabrielle seven Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i absolutely Mm-hmm. Could not have loved it more. And I just started a kind of a weird show. It's I think it's only a four episode on HBO, but I started it last night and I really like it called The Landscapers oh. with Olivia Coleman. Oh, it's like yeah. a true crime and it's really weird and I really yes. like it. So yeah. that's what I'm that's what I'm loving. And I've just been drinking oh. a lot of rose all summer. Nice. So I've Amen been loving that. that as well. <laughs> Nice. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Tell listeners where they can find you on social media. On Instagram at Alyssa Friedland, on Facebook, author Alyssa Friedland. Those are my two platforms. And then I encourage everyone to go to my website. You can sign up for my newsletter. And I always recommend podcasts, TV shows, books that I'm loving. So AlyssaFriedland.com. And it's like shows my book tour, shows how to sign up for my newsletter, you know, little fun awesome. tidbits. But Instagram's the best, best awesome. first place to start. 
Yeah, that's awesome. The Most Likely Club is out now. It is, a, like I said, a really fun, easy read that make you want to call your girlfriends, but also have yeah. a good conversation. The best kind of book to us. So thank you so much. Thanks.